Amen. Well, I missed you all last week. Amen. I was, I was celebrating 27 years of marriage. Yeah. 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 Praise God. And, um, you know, my wife has been talking about getting lean. And, <laughs> you know, it's something about eating vegetables and it seems like it's not making me lean, it's making me mean. <laughs> but anyway, I still have my joy, but the ice cream cone makes me happy. <laughs> Let's lift our hearts to the Lord. Father, we just thank you so much for your love, your grace, and your presence here today. We thank you, Lord, for the precious gift of your Holy Spirit, and we ask that you would teach us, that you would lead us, that you would cause us to glorify you in and through our lives. Bless the pastor and give him strength in Jesus' name. Amen. It's amazing that Claude and Debbie got married when they were 10 years old. I mean, that's just, isn't that something? Wow. Um, <laughs> next Sunday, guys, we are celebrating our third year anniversary. It's going to be a celebration. It's going to be a party. We are going to put celebration back into Celebration Sunday, next Sunday. Um, and so I just want to encourage you to, to come and bring, you know, your friends. There's going to be a lot of stuff for the kids and just some cool stuff. Um, and we're also going to launch a, a series called Dare to Dream. And this series is going to be all about developing and grabbing and getting a hold of God's vision for your life, for your relationships, for your marriage, for your home, for our church. We're going to be talking about where God is taking us as a congregation. We're going to be talking about vision for our community, vision for our city, vision for our world. It is going to be a really amazing uh, series, and you're going to get a lot out of it. So uh, bring your friends. They will, too. Um, but today, before we launch into that series, I'm going to talk just a little bit about what makes a church young and what makes a church old? And let me t just give you a hint. I'll show you my cards at the beginning. It has nothing to do with the actual age of the church. It has nothing to do with how many years the church has been around. Uh, same as in with individuals. We have some 80-year-old folks in here that are more vibrant and youthful and engaging and spiritually dynamic than anybody you ever want to meet. Um, I've, I've uh, had breakfast with Dr. Canfield Today, and man, or this, not today, <laughs> um, we got up at 5 o'clock and had some breakfast. Uh, no, this week, and, and just so encouraged by the, the spiritual excitement that is amidst our people here at U-City Family Church. Um, so let me start today by asking you this question. As you think about yourself, as you think about your own age personally, how many of you actually feel like you're a few years younger than your birth certificate would dictate. Yeah, somebody, yeah. A lot of, lot of folks, right? Where you're like, you know what? You're saying to yourself, I can't believe that I am fill-in-the-blank years old. Can you believe it? You know, I, I, I took um, Rebecca down to Arizona, to Tempe, Arizona. My sister got married, and I did my undergrad work there. I did my undergrad uh, education there at ASU. And I used to work at a coffee shop. I used to bus tables at this coffee shop, and it was called Coffee Plantation. It was like the cool joint there on Mill Avenue and 6th Street, kind of like the Del Mar Loop. It, it was just like this really neat spot. Everybody would come down there, and they would hang out and 
play music and talk and philosophize. So I had a lot of good memories at this place. So I wanted to show Rebecca my old digs, my old stomping grounds, right? So I, br- I bring her to over here to, to Coffee Plantation down on, d- on, down on Mill, and we get up to the corner, and it's not there anymore. The Coffee Plantation is gone. There's a Five Guys Burgers there now, which made Rebecca very happy, made me very sad. Um, because I really wanted to share with her, you know, these memories that I had. So we ended up walking down the street, going to this little taco joint. And I go in, and there's like a 20, 19, 20-year-old guy behind the counter, and he's serving up tacos. And I go, hey, man, what's, what's, what's up with the coffee plantation? Where's coffee plantation? And he goes, coffee plantation? I go, yeah, the coffee shop that was right there on Mill and 6th Street. He's like, oh, yeah, I, I think I remember hearing about that. He said, my mom used to talk about that place. And I'm like, your mom? And in my, it's because in my mind, I'm thinking, like, I'm five years older than this guy. And then I started doing the math. And I'm like, yeah, I, I, could, I could probably be your dad, man. That's weird, but yeah. Because, you see, there's like a disparity between my perceived, self-perceived age and the data that the hospital generated. I, I think there must be some conspiracy going on. Um, there actually was a, a study in the New York Times published a few years ago from University of Michigan, and they found that the average person thinks of themselves as 20% younger than they actually are. So if you're 25, you probably locate yourself somewhere around when you were 20. If you're 40, you probably think of yourself as in your early 30s. And, you know, for the 50-year-olds, that's the new 40, right? So, so we, we, have this, we have this age gap. Um, and there's a church in uh, Menlo Park, California, which is just south of San Francisco. This church is pastored by a guy named John Ortberg. You hear me talk about him every once in a while. He's one of my, he's one of my heroes. That church was founded in 1873. We're getting ready to have our third year anniversary. They're having their 141st anniversary. This church has been around for a while. And when you think of a 140-something-year-old church, you sometimes may think of like, wow, they're probably just barely getting by. They're probably just dying on the vine. But they're not. This church, 140 years old, is growing, and they're planting new campuses. They put a stake in the ground. They've got a goal to reach 5,000 more people in the next few years. They are reaching people with the gospel. People are being transformed. It is this amazingly vibrant and growing congregation. And John Ortberg, the pastor a few months ago preached a sermon called The Cost of Not Adding. And in that sermon, he asked this question, and I'm going to read it to you guys. He said, when has a church been around so long that it can say, now we're going to leave innovating and experimenting and doing new stuff and praying and risking and giving and serving and evangelizing to other new churches, and we're just going to focus on the people who are inside our church. When can a church say that, he says. He said, that's the day a church goes from being young and bearing fruit to growing old and dying. What makes a church young is not how many years since it got started, he says. It's a church that says we will never stop doing what Jesus commanded us to do. We will never stop loving people Jesus called us to love. We will never stop giving what Jesus commanded us to give. We will always remember that our community in here exists for the sake of God's world out there. We're a church that looks out and says, who has not yet received this beautiful gift called the gospel of Jesus Christ? How can I share that with them? That's what keeps a church vibrant and strong and dynamic and powerful, is that it remembers what its purpose is. 
It's looking out. Um, I want to, when, when we got together this morning, our dream team, many, many folks on our dream team gathered together and they're setting stuff up and the music team's getting here and visual production people are getting set up in the sound team and hospitality and greeting and children's and parking and every, you know, teams are just coming together. And so we always try to get together in a little huddle before service. And we were talking, we were saying, you know what, what is so powerful and exciting about what you guys are doing, what we're all doing right here is that even though some of the stuff we're doing may seem rudimentary, plugging in cables, setting up video feeds and that kind of thing, we're doing it because we want to reach people who have not experienced God's love, God's grace, and God's mercy. It's tied to a bigger picture. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you, I'm going to go through a story that's probably very familiar with you and sort of use this story that Jesus um, displayed for us as a template for what our church wants to be, needs to be, ought to be for the next 140 years. Now, I'm going to be old, I hope you know, when I'm preaching 140 years from now, um, but that's okay. Um, actually, there was a, there's a pastor named uh, Derwin L. Gray down in South Carolina, and uh, he always, he's, he's got, if you, he used to be a former NFL football player, he's got this amazingly beautiful round afro on his head. He's like in his mid-40s, and I, and I listened to some of his sermons, and the other day he said, I just want you to know that I'm not cutting this off. He says, when it goes clean down the middle, I'm keeping the side fro, and that's just how it's going to rock. So I'm just telling you, I'm going to be here for a while. Um, <laughs> If you see a picture of him, it's even funnier because he's getting a little light in the middle. Um, okay, so let me set this up, this story. Jesus is preaching out at the Judean countryside. He has sort of at the zenith of his ministry. People are coming. He's preaching. People are getting healed. Thousands of people are flocking to Jesus outside of Jerusalem in Judea. And he, he's, 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 he's trending on Twitter. His tens of thousands of Facebook likes. The guy is like blowing up. And then in verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. That's John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So, Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. What's going on here? What's going on is that Jesus is, is thriving and growing and developing, and the professional religious folks start turning on him and spreading rumors and gossiping and lying and telling all kinds of you know, half-truths, and they start getting into this weird religious, inward-looking culture. And Jesus says, I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in having discussions and debates that are inward-looking. I'm interested in reaching people who have not yet met me because I want to spread my message of love and grace and mercy to everyone I can meet. So Jesus says, I'm leaving Jerusalem, I'm leaving Judea, and I'm going to go up to, uh, to Galilee where he grew up. Verse 4 is interesting because it says, now he had to go through Samaria. So this is sort of a surprising verse because when you hear that Jesus had to do X, Y, or Z, you've got to scratch your head and say, well, why did he have to do that? Right? Jesus could have gone east over the Jordan River, cruised up that side, and then popped over to Galilee. He didn't have to go through, geographically, didn't have to go through Samaria. 
He could have flown over Samaria. He could have vaporized and appeared in Galilee if he wanted. He did not have to go through Samaria unless there was something else going on spiritually that we don't know about because a lot of, a lot of Jewish folks would not go through Samaria on their way to Galilee. There was a ton of racial tension, ethnic tension, religious tension between Jews and Samaritans, and it, it was not, a, it was not a, a convivial sort of relationship. Folks wouldn't just travel through there if they didn't have to. Jesus said he had to go up there. Um, verse 5. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Jacob's well was there. Jacob's well is a well that is right there in that same region it's, it's one of those undisputed biblical sites. Like if you go over to Israel today, it's not like, you know, questions about where was Jesus crucified? Was it this place or that place? Jacob's well is well known. It's been there for millennia. It's not a huge well. It's relatively small. And everyone knows and everyone agrees this is Jacob's well. So if you actually went to Israel today and sat down on Jacob's well and then just sort of scooted yourself all the way around the well, then you would know that you sat down where Jesus sat down. I'm not recommending you do that. I don't know if they would even allow that. Um, you may have to pay extra. But that's uh, Jacob's Wells right there. Jesus was tired, uh, and so he was tired from the journey, so he sat down by the well, and it says, just a little parenthetical, it was about noon. Just throwing that in there. I just want you to know what time it is. So we're going to get back to that in just a minute. It was about noon, it says. Now, Jesus' disciples had already gone, we learned from the text, gone to town to get some food. So Jesus is out there in this desert area where there's this isolated well. It's noon. He's by himself. Verse 7 says, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now, let me just stop right here for just a second, because to the first century audience reading that phrase, that would have been like a bomb going off in their brain, that Jesus alone in a desert on a well sees a Samaritan woman coming across the desert, stays at the well until she approaches, and then not only stays there, engages her in conversation. This was highly scandalous at the time in first century Israel. Because first of all, a Jewish rabbi doesn't, doesn't interact with a woman alone in any kind of situation. What, he, what, what, what most would have done would get up and walk away, go 50 yards away, wait till she's done, she leaves, he comes back. The fact that the writer then says it's a Samaritan woman, that's a signal to you. That's a punchline. That's like saying this woman is not only a woman when there's some cultural issues going on, but this is a Samaritan woman. This is, this is a woman that Jesus should not be talking to at all. In fact, no Jews should be having this discourse with Samaritans. These people are not friends. They don't get along. They do not work with each other. Um, this would have been equivalent to like a headline saying, Billy Graham seen in a Los Angeles hotspot having a cocktail with Miley Cyrus, right? It would just be like, what? <laughs> but Jesus sits down with this woman on the, at the well. Um, why is he doing this? Why is he leaving this, this thriving ministry, this going and blowing ministry where he's reaching his own people and people are being healed and people are being changed? Why does he do that and then go out all by himself to this little well to see this one woman? Like it's, like it's not an accident. 
He's there because he wants to do something. He wants to demonstrate something to you, and he wants to demonstrate something to me. What he is saying is that in Jesus' world, meaning in our world, meaning in our church, meaning in U City Family Church, everybody is welcome. Everybody, he's saying, is welcome. One of the most striking things about Jesus' ministry Not necessarily his miracles. Other people had performed miracles. Not necessarily his teachings, although some of his teachings were amazing and revolutionary. Some of them were pretty standard fare. But what was absolutely mesmerizing and stunning about Jesus' ministry was his willingness to spend time with and associate with people who were cultural pariah and who were cultural outcasts. He, He would sit down with tax collectors and prostitutes and lepers and liars and cheaters and sex addicts and drunks and demon-possessed people, the disenfranchised, the weak, the poor, anyone who would approach Jesus, he would embrace them. What does that mean for us? What is he trying to tell us? That means that if Jesus would go all the way to Samaria to sit down and meet with one woman who was a cultural and social pariah, then we need to be able to throw open our doors and welcome every single person who wants to come in here and learn about Jesus. That's what keeps a church young. Every person who's got issues, every person whose life is complicated, every person who's messed up, every person who's not sure what they believe, every person who has doubts, every person who struggles with sin, every person who's not sure how to make it all work together, they are welcome here. And I say they meaning you (laughs) and me, because that is all of us. When a church is working right, families are restored, sexuality gets redeemed, the lonely find brothers and sisters to surround and support them, the broken get mended. That means your neighbor who, who, who drinks too much, he's welcome here. That means your colleague who primarily identifies herself by her sexual orientation, she's welcome to come in here. That means your classmate who hates organized religion and doesn't, doesn't n- know what they actually believe about the Bible, or maybe they're pretty certain they don't believe anything about the Bible, they're welcome here. They're, your coworker who dropped out of church 10 years ago, he's welcome here. Everybody is welcome in Christ's church. Everybody, all of us, with our habits, our hang-ups, our tempers, our moods, our doubts, our questionable choices, we are all welcome at Christ's well to come and get a drink from Christ's well. Amen? Okay, back at the well. Jesus asked the Samaritan woman for a drink. And what follows is the absolute longest conversation between Jesus and anybody recorded in the Bible. This is the longest conversation, longer than with Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, Philip, Matthew, (laughs) anyone, okay? The, 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 uh, The Pharisees. And I'm not gonna put the whole conversation up there, but I'm going to summarize it for you. All right. Jesus says to the woman, I want to, can you give me a drink? The woman says to him, why are you asking me for a drink? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. This is awkward. We don't do this. We don't associate with each other. Jesus says, well, actually I'm just asking you for a drink as a lead in because what I I really don't need a drink from you. What I really want to do is I want to give you a drink of something that I have to offer. It's called living water. And if you drink of what I have to offer you, you're not only not going to thirst again, you won't need your bucket because you will become a spring. You will become a spring that nourishes and gives life and hope and peace and comfort to other people. Out of your belly will flow rivers of living water if you taste 
what I have to give you. The woman says, I would like what you have to give me. Can I please have some? Everything is going great in this conversation so far. And then Jesus pulls this strange, unexpected pivot in the conversation. Look what he does in verse 16. Go call your husband and come back. It's like, wait a minute. We were talking about spring up a well in my soul. We were talking about bubbles of water and all this stuff. And then suddenly it's like, wait a minute. Bring your husband? Where did this, where did this, this didn't flow. This wasn't part of the conversation. Then it gets even more awkward because the woman then replies to Jesus. She says, I have no husband. I don't have a husband. Okay, so now this conversation, which was going really well, is now getting very awkward. Very strange. Jesus says, bring your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. What is Jesus doing here? Verse 17. He says, you know what? You're right. You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. So it's like, what, are you, what is happening here? What he's doing? He, he, it, in a way, when you first read it, you're thinking, is he being mean? Is he being a jerk? Is he, like, showing off his foreknowledge, right? What is he doing? What he is doing is he's saying this to her. He's saying, look, I want you to know something. I know your situation better than you do. I know uh, the questionable choices that you've made. I know that your life is messed up. I know that you've been seeking male attention all your life. I know that your morality is so compromised that you're out here at noon because you're hiding from everybody. Nobody comes to this well at noon because it's extremely hot. So when the women come out to the well, they come in the morning and in the evening. You're slinking out here at noon because you don't want to see anybody. I know that. I know about the choices you've made. I know about the flawed morality. I know about everything that's going on in your world. But I want you to know I love you anyway, and I want to give you what I have to give you. He's saying that in his church and in relationship with him, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. Everybody is welcome, and nobody's perfect. And those are the folks that he wants to come and populate his congregation because that's all of us. And he's using her as an example to you and me. I am extremely glad that Jesus' church is not full of perfect people. Because I would feel extremely out of place, and so would you. <laughs> you would feel out of place. Um, I remember four years ago, I was riding on the metro. I was here in, 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 you know, in U City. I was getting on the metro at the Del Mar Loop Station. I was working down at a law firm downtown. And I had been praying about, for several years, planting a church in University City and thinking about it and reading books and going to you know, uh, seminars and this kind of thing. And I remember being on this metro one morning, and it was cold, and people were, you know, on the metro. They, it was early. They didn't want to be there. Everybody had that thousand-mile uh, thousand uh, uh, stare in their eye. They were kind of just fading off. There were people with suits. There were people with work boots. There were black, white, Asian, Hispanic. There were people, you know, mumbling to themselves. There were people reading classical literature. I mean, there was a, it, was, it was a wide array of people, strikingly wide array of people on that metro on that morning. And I was just kind of like looking across the, the faces of everybody on the metro. It was crowded. And I distinctly remember the, being just so impressed in my heart and, and, and in my soul, God saying, these are your people, Brent. 
These are my people. These are the people to whom I have called you to preach the gospel, to bring the message of my love and my redemption and my hope. I want you to go and preach this to them. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, I am not sure that I can pull that off. I've got a family. I've got a, a good job. Um, I, the last time I preached, I, I preached like one time before. It was when I was like 19, and I should not have been in the pulpit. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know how to preach. I'd never been to seminary. I was a non-believer for about 15 years, so I was not hip to what was going on in church culture, um, and I had made some dumb choices while I wasn't a believer, and I just started kind of going down the list of the reasons why it wouldn't be a good idea for me to be a pastor and plant a church. And God really spoke into my heart, and that, that, that theme of nobody's perfect just hit me so hard because God is saying, I don't need perfection. I don't need you to be perfect. You're not going to be perfect. You're going to be weak, and I'm going to be strong. You're, in yourself, you're not going to be able to do it, but you're going to lean on me. You're going to rely on me, and by my power through the Holy Spirit that's inside of you, you're going to reach out, and you're going to change the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're going to be a part of my body that is going out and doing what I, I've called you to do. And in that time, I just felt so restored, so hopeful, so grateful that God doesn't use perfect people. He uses broken people, messed up people, to go and spread his gospel and bring redemption and hope and salvation to his whole world. Everybody is welcome. Nobody is perfect. The woman in this story is stunned by Jesus' knowledge of her. Uh, he goes on to explain some things about her life that he could not know. Uh, he tells her that the time has come, that, that the barrier between Jews and, and, and Samaritans is being broken down, and that everyone is going to be able to worship God in spirit and in truth. And then in a moment that is just absolutely profound and beautiful in the Scripture, he tells her that he's the one to make it all happen. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the Lord. He's the Son of God who was coming into this world to break down the barrier, to, to create a new people who will populate and colonize his world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's here now, and he's breaking it all down. In that moment, the scales fall off of this woman's eyes. She's been an outsider and an outcast all of her life, and suddenly she gets an inside glimpse to the most important powerful truth in the history of the universe that God sent his son to break down all the barriers so that everyone can come to him and have access to God the Father through the grace of Jesus Christ. She gets that in this moment. And the scripture says she turned on her heel and took off back to town. And it throws in a little interesting detail that she had forgot her pot. She was in such a hurry she had forgot her pot. And the reality is she didn't need her pot because she had just become a spring. She was going and, and, and telling every single person in that town what was happening to her out at this well. The Bible says that the townspeople flocked to her uh, and, and, and came out to see what Jesus had to, to say. They convinced him to stick around for two days, and the Bible says that he sat there and taught them for two days and that many came to believe. What's amazing about this story is that Jesus' first Samaritan missionary is a woman whose life was deeply 
broken, deeply compromised. She was a social pariah and outcast. And he used her as his first emissary to go and preach to the Samaritans. It's an absolutely mind-boggling fact that Jesus is trying to show us that he left all of that sort of hoopla and religious nonsense back in Judea to come and, and, and meet with one person, one woman who desperately needed him. And when he met with her and his love and his grace transformed her heart, she became a, a, a well of, of grace and hope and love to all of the people in her community. And they came out and they became believers and they found Jesus. What he's trying to say is that in Christ's church, anything is possible. Everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. Anything is possible. doesn't matter where you've come from, where you've been, what you've experienced. God can take what you've got right here and right now and transform it into an implement for his glory and his honor and bring people to the love and the grace of Jesus Christ through you. Through you. Believe, believe that. That's why this story is in the Bible, to convince you of that very fact. I'm going to read you an email, and there is absolutely no way I'm going to get through this email. I can already tell. Like, I'm getting choked up thinking about this. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to read this email from someone, that I, uh, from someone who, who's been coming to our congregation um, for a while. Uh, she gave me permission, to, and I'm, I'm not going to identify her or read any facts from the email that would identify her. But uh, she, she grew up in a church, but... Uh, she experienced some things that nobody should ever, ever experience anywhere, especially in a church, um, any, any young person. Uh, and, and it, you know, sort of caused some really serious, difficult personal um, experiences for her, um, challenging personal issues. She wasn't sure when she started coming if the church would be a safe place for her. She felt more comfortable in almost any environment than a church because she had been so deeply damaged and wounded by her experiences in a church. Um, and so I met with her and, and, and just remember thinking, I don't, I don't know if she is ever going to come back. Um, but she did come back, and over the weeks and the months that she's been here, Christ has slowly revealed himself to her through the love of this congregation. I'm going to read you... Um, some of this email, um, and I'm going to do it in a low voice so that I don't start <clears throat> tearing up. Okay. She says, Pastor Brent, I wanted to express my gratitude for you and the congregation. I have felt a tremendous amount of support and encouragement from, and then she lists the names of several people in the congregation who have been present for her during a difficult time. She says, in the recovery process, therapists talk about creating a, quote, family of choice. Since most individuals who are in recovery don't have parents and families who are emotionally available. I not only believe but feel that the church is a place where I can develop those relationships with people who care for me, not because they are paid like a therapist, not because they have to like my family, but because they want to. Their love for Jesus is so very evident. I truly feel that the people of our church have been, and then this, this is the phrase that just like just blew me away. She says, I truly feel that the people in our church have been Jesus in skin to me. She says, it challenges, encourages, and inspires me 
to deepen my faith. I am going to, uh, I'm going to a life group, so I'm excited to get further connected. I was talking to my mom over the phone about all the help that was given to me, and she and I started crying happy tears. The church has deeply touched me in ways that I can't explain. I hope you know that I would not articulate these emotions just to articulate them, but that I truly mean them with all my heart. That's the thing, Pastor Brent. The church has been the holy healing and human hands of Jesus with gratitude and in her name. Amazing, amazing, amazing what is happening. What is happening in the lives of people who are coming to this church and experiencing what the Holy Spirit is doing through this congregation. Jesus in skin. Can, can somebody write a song called Jesus in skin? That is so beautiful. This church has been Jesus in skin to her. So if you want to know what keeps a church young and vibrant and life-giving, it's this. It's keeping that focus on the person who is not sure, who is uncertain, who may have some challenges and difficulties, who's struggling, who's broken, who needs redemption and hope, and we welcome them and we embrace them and we bring them in here and we surround them with God's love and we surround them with sound biblical teaching and we, and we stand upright and we live lives that are glorifying to God and we bring them hope and restoration and peace and comfort until they are healed and they, like the Samaritan woman, then go out and bring others and draw them to the well of Jesus Christ. In, uh, in that church, Menlo Park, the church from 1873 that's still growing and developing and dynamic, they put up a sign. They put up three signs in their church, and those signs say this. Everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. All things are possible. That's John Ortberg over there, and he just wants this 140-year-old church to know that this is the message of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus wants a church to be. This is what he has called us to be. Next Sunday, we're going to be three years old, and we are going to celebrate, and we're going to party because God is changing lives right here in this theater. People are getting baptized. People are committing their hearts to God. People are getting saved. People are getting set free. Relationships are being mended. People are finding purpose and fulfillment and, and, and their destiny here in this church. And I want to invite you to come next Sunday and bring everybody you know to the well and let them get a taste of what Jesus has to offer them as well. We want to be a church where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, anything is possible. So let's serve like we're serving Jesus himself. Let's give like we're overflowing with gladness and generosity. Let's love like we've never loved before. Let's, let's go out. Amen, Tina. Go ahead, girl. <laughs> let's go out this week and do what this Samaritan woman did. Let's tell the world what Jesus has done for us. Let's bring them here, and let's let them get a taste of the living water for themselves. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we come before you right now. We thank you, God, for your mercy, your grace, your redemption. We thank you for the love that you have shown us, the transformation in our hearts. We thank you for what you've done 
God, in the lives of, of, of every person in this room who calls themselves a follower of you. We ask, Lord, for those that are still kind of thinking about it, who are on the fence, who are uncertain, who are unsure, we ask, Lord, that you would reveal, themselves, reveal yourself to them. Uh, and, God, maybe you can even reveal yourself to them through the hands and the feet and the words and the hugs and the love of the people that are in this congregation. Let us be your skin to the community around us. Let us be Jesus to the men and women in our city and in our state and in our country and in our world. And God, next week as we begin to throw out the vision of what you have for us as a church, God, we ask that you bring folks here that are struggling, that don't know you, that need help, that have lives that are messed up. In other words, all of us, Lord, bring them in and let us be a light to them. Let us be salt to them. Let us bring the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that is absolutely loving and merciful and graceful and transformative, God. Help us to engage minds, encourage hearts, and empower hands with the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ right here at U City Family Church. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We worship you in Jesus' name. Jesus' name, amen. Amen.